Hello, everyone. I Welcome back to the Convergence Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Minch. And I am Caleb Metz. And today we've got for you a very interesting episode, I think. Uh, I've It's based off of a book that we've both read called Philosophy of Biology. So we're going to do an episode taking a whole look at all sorts of topics in biology, which is our major, by the way. So uh, it's stuff that we sh- will eventually be learning, stuff we've already learned, and stuff that's embedded into the very heart of what biology is. So it's going to be a super cool uh, overview of a lot of different issues, and we might even discuss some of these issues uh, in future episodes uh, just on their own because there's so much you could go into with them. So uh, I think that we have a lot to discuss here, so we're going to get right into it. We're just going to we're grazing over the different aspects of biology and different topics within them uh, regarding uh, questions such as what is life? Is there design in nature? Uh, does teleology help or hurt biology? Uh, does God help or hurt biology? Uh, just questions like these that are very important in our day and age. And I think really important to us as Christians as well because we're called to th- uh, think biblically about things. Uh, we know Jesus thought biblically about all problems, especially questions that Pharisees had to ask him in Matthew, uh, especially around Matthew chapter 20 when they're asking him about the afterlife. Jesus goes straight to the Bible and pulls out a biblical principle to respond to them. So I think uh, responding biblically to philosophical issues that come up in biology is extremely important for Christian scientists as well. So we're going to start this, kick it right off with the first question, which is what is life? So Really, the big question behind this is what classifies as life or what is a non-life? Uh, and this is actually a really important question uh, right now in our culture because this question is at the heart of so many issues in our society, such as uh, especially around the areas of abortion and also uh, ethics involving animals and what to, what we can do with stem cells and stuff like that. Because if you think that a fetus is not life until it is born into this world, uh, your definition of life versus not life can really weigh into whether you keep that alive or you can you're okay with killing it so it's very important to not just biology but also to society i hope that you understand that biology biology is not its separate little sphere here in the corner it actually extends very far into all sorts of breaches into society so these fundamental questions are going to have importances beyond just biology even though this episode might be called philosophy of biology it might as well be philosophy of life but yeah all right we're going into so there's some different perspectives about what is life that have formulated over the millennia of pondering this question uh the first comes from aristotle actually in his uh famous book the generation of animals uh where he states that uh there's something obviously different about life versus non-life and he calls this thing a soul not the same thing we as christians might call a soul Uh, But he thinks that there's this just an entity within something that gives it like life. It's like a breath of life almost like you'd see in like Pinocchio maybe or some puppet movie. Uh, But there's a lot of like mystical things going on because Aristotle, I mean, let's give him some credit. There wasn't that much hard science derived in the uh, ancient Greek times. So he came up with a pretty brilliant idea of the soul there. And so he said anything that has this soul aspect, even though he couldn't describe it, was there's life uh, in that and he said there's an obvious difference between life and non-life and then you've got people on the other side of the issue like J.B.S. Haldane who's a biologist a more recent one than Aristotle uh, he shifts the question uh, by defining life based on what it does uh, life is an activity uh, or a pattern of chemical processes so he defines life as what it's 
what is it doing? Is it doing these certain chemical processes such as responding to the environment? Is it growing? Uh, does it have the ability to reproduce? Does it have a metabolic rate? Can it breathe? Can it exchange gases? Can it maintain homeostasis or the same with its environment? Uh, and uh, can it pass on its offspring? Does it require, does it have some sort of hereditary material? Uh, so he would be one to classify life as something that does these things. Uh, and if it doesn't do these things, it's not life. So uh, by some of these definitions, it kind of gets blurry whether a fetus is life or not. But I mean, it, it can't actually act on its own because it's still in its mother. So, I mean, you don't really know for sure. But I mean, the cells are still doing the thing and the cells you could say are still living according to this definition. But then there's, there's just a bunch of things you could apply from this. Uh, so I think a Christian perspective that you could take on this is believing that humans do have souls, just like Aristotle uh, did believe. Uh, there is definitely something different, but we think there's a different kind of soul special special for humans that's not present in animals, right? The soul that allows us to have a distinct relationship with God and also uh, live with him forever afterwards. So that's sort of my thoughts on the, the animals. Do you have anything to add on to the what is life question? Not really. Yeah, I agree with like humans have souls, not animals, because that's pretty prevalent in the Bible talking about that. Yeah. We don't see many animals talk, except for that donkey that talked in, where is that, Chronicles or something? I don't know. That was a crazy story. Yeah, that was weird. That's a cool story. It's a good premise for a movie. They've probably made a movie about that. That's not a good premise for a movie. Maybe not. (laughs) It's like Shrek. (laughs) Minus Shrek. (laughs) All right. uh, We're moving on to our next question. I believe, Caleb, you got that one. Right. I've got this. It is, is there design in nature? First off, why does this matter? Well, this is very important for people because for most of time of science, people believe that there was some sort of creator and there's some sort of God. And this design is important because many people believe that the distinguishing property of life is that it shows evidence for creative forethought. Many people have and many people still do believe, believe that life has come from a creator who was God. However, nowadays more and more people are throwing design out the window saying that it it is an illusion created by our own genes, created by our own ideas of morality and society. And then we have different perspectives. We have William Pally who has the idea of natural theology where you have the earth came from existence from God and he's the one who created it um Pally's also a Christian apologist and a philosophy of religion and he talks about the argument for um life and intelligent design and on the other hand you have Richard Dawkins and his blind watchmaker book which basically talks about how evolution proves that life came just by chance there's no design that the, the real big uh, ironic thing in his book you got the you got this watch that looks super designed but there's a blind watchmaker just making it so it's just kind of looks like it's designed it was just kind of random chance that it got there but it's a watch and i guess we could call it design but it's not really designed so kind of contradictory yeah it's a lot of so that's is actually a really big question uh and 
discussion now with the modern evolution debate versus intelligent design and you've got a lot of people on one hand saying look at we've got these things they obviously look designed and then you've got a lot of other people that are like just throwing it out the window They're like nope it might look designed but it wasn't designed so i don't know I don't know. I've never actually believed the second mind, but I could see how people could hold to it based on an evolution uh, epistemology, could you say, uh, that doesn't allow for design in anywhere, really. So that's a pretty big question uh, dealing with the biology. Uh, the next one we've actually discussed a little bit on our show before, I believe back in episode one, but you probably don't remember episode one, so we're going to go over it again. Uh, we probably have other things to say, too. That's not the exact uh, duplicate because we don't steal our own material here on the Convergence Podcast. 100% original. 90%. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, so really, it's a question of teleology. So what is teleology? Well, we remember from episode one, the telos is a Greek word that means purpose, or what is it? what's the meaning? It's asking questions such as, is this universe purposeful, or do we get to make our own purpose? Uh, and obviously, you can see where the big implications here are for the Christian faith. Uh, obviously, Obviously, the universe is purposeful because it's made by a purposeful being. Uh, and so we've got uh, your answer to this question is going to guide the way that you do science, actually. Uh, the last time there was a teleological revolution, there was also a scientific one. Uh, so just think about that for a little bit. You've got the 16th century. The last time people took Jesus serious as their telos, you've got this giant scientific revolution with Isaac Newton, Kepler, Galileo, everyone uh, just pursuing uh, knowledge of God and his creation. Uh, and I think it mattered, this question matters especially to our modern day uh, because we know a lot about matter, a lot about uh, stuff. I mean, you can, you can hand me a molecule and I can explain to you its polarity and all the stuff about it, but we know less about why matter matters. So we, I think we've said this quote before, but I mean, it's just such a good quote. We just got to keep bringing it back. I mean, it really explains one of the modern critical states of science right now. People just aren't asking the teleological questions. Yeah. Uh, so we've got some different perspectives on this issue. Uh, one of them is held by a biologist called Paul Kramer, who's a botanist, actually, who believes that all teleological language in biology is inappropriate. We don't need it. It's actually hindering us from finding the truth uh, about the situation. Uh, but this is actually a very fringe, uh, a fringe which perspective, I guess, on the idea. Not a lot of people think that we should completely throw teleology out the. That's a really hard word to say. Uh, out the window, but uh, <clears throat> uh, many people do fall into that category of throwing it out the window. Uh, but you could see there's atheists that actually hold both sides. You've got a guy named Francisco Ayala, who is not a Christian, but he thinks that tell you must be a tel teleologist. Tele teleologist. Teleologist. Wow, that's a hard word. The Greeks, man, they give us all the hard ones. So he thinks that you, sh you must be a teleologist in order to be a biologist, uh, that these function questions asking why something matters actually make sense and actually advance, advances the total biological knowledge. So uh, he thinks that these questions are very helpful. He looks at things like the eye, and he's asking, what is the eye for? Or what is the heart for? He can notice that the eye looks like it functions like a telescope. And he can be like, oh, the eye must be for seeing. I mean, 
there's a lot of teleological information that we can be super helpful to us as humans, even understanding our own position. Uh, from a Christian perspective, obviously we believe that there is a telos in the universe, and we believe that is Jesus, actually. Uh, so a quick little story I read on an article a while ago. It's about this dad and his son, and his son was, uh, we'll just call him Fred. And so the dad tells Fred one day, hey, look, I got a lawnmower. And Fred asks him the question, what does a lawnmower do? Or what is the lawnmower used for? And his dad goes into this giant explanation about the history of lawnmowers, uh, what the lawnmowers are made out of. He's like, they're made out of steel. You've got the blade. You've got all these parts. The first lawnmower was made in 1755. Don't quote me on that. It's probably wrong. <laughs> That's not even the Industrial Revolution yet. But his dad just tells him all this stuff. But uh, Fred, his name was Fred, right? Uh, okay. Uh, Fred is still left wondering what this lawnmower does. So Fred decides... Oh, I'm just going to go set up this uh, lawnmower. I mean, it's got blades. I, I've seen fans. They have blades. So I set, he sets up the lawnmower in his hand, uh, in his room, to as a fan. And so he start, starts the lawnmower because, I mean, his dad taught him all the parts. So he starts the lawnmower, ends up losing a few fingers, and then he goes back to his dad. Uh, and his dad's like, what What did you, what happened there? And he's like, you never told me what this is for. Uh, there's no really purpose to the lawnmower, so I invented my own purpose for it. Uh, and that purpose was obviously not the purpose it was intended to do. Uh, lawnmowers were never meant to be fans, just like there's certain things in biology that were never meant to be used uh, the way that they were. Uh, some people just put their own purpose on things, uh, and this can leave really a m there's a meaning void in biology, and I think a lot of times in our society, uh, especially in a materialistic worldview, a materialistic cosmos, uh, we talked about this a little bit a few episodes ago when we talked about materialism, uh, but this void must be filled somehow. I mean, humans are very good at filling voids with whatever the heck they want to put in them. Uh, the human heart, like nature, abhors a vacuum. Uh, this is sort of a play on an old quote uh, from the scientific revolution where nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, vacuums are very rare uh, and things want to fill them. So the human heart will fill them and people will ascribe their own meaning to things. Uh, and we see this is actually very damaging to us as Christians because Jesus is our telos. Uh, we see this in First Colossians 15 to 20. actually wrote a paper about this a while ago. And it says, all things were made by him and for him. And so we see that all things were made for Jesus, which he is the ultimate purpose in doing this. So by doing science, we are thinking God's thoughts after him. Uh, as Kepler once said, uh, one of the scientists, a part of the teleological and scientific revolution in the 1600s. Uh, so we're doing science, thinking God's thoughts after him, not staring into an empty void, as Nitzsky once said. So I think it really changes the way we do science if we think of it from a teleological standpoint, especially one of viewing Jesus as the telos there. And I have the next point, which is molecular reductionism. So Here's a little background for it. So Watson and Crick found that DNA is double helixed, and this was a foundation for molecular biology and studying DNA. Question is, was this molecular revolution a good thing? Do we run into danger when reducing everything to molecular parts? So reductionism is the practice of analyzing and describing a complex phenomenon in terms of phenomena that are held to be to represent a simpler or more fundamental level. Basically, this is saying 
instead of looking at a huge big picture, you're looking at the little, say you have a painting and it's a painting of a person, a portrait. Instead of looking at the whole painting, you're looking at, oh, there's a freckle on their face and just looking at that one freckle. Yeah. And looking at like what paint made that up. And I think even a better analogy, you're looking at a photo and you're looking at a pixel of the right. photo. There's like, it's made up of a bunch of pixels. Sort of when you're looking at a human, you're looking at the cell. You could even go lower than that. When you look at a human, you're just looking at a co- composition of their genes or a composition of your cell types. So that's a little bit what MR or molecular reductionism is. Why does this matter? Reductionism and oversimplification of issues is a faulty philosophical approach to this complex world and can keep you from knowledge and understanding. If you don't have the big picture, then you won't know and understand everything. So there are different perspectives. A guy named Schaffner said, everything is no more than molecules. If you have that perspective, then you really don't care about morals or ethics or yeah. anything of that nature. Problems with reductionism. DNA is just not molecules. It's a particular order of molecules. There's an arrangement with DNA. It's just not, okay, here's a nucleotide here bonded to another nucleotide. It's actually got an order and a sequence. It has a meaning. For Christians, there's big problems with things that are way too simple. Lots of people have big problems with ideologies like molecular reductionism people like jp moreland and jordan peterson speak out against them because ideas that oversimplify can hurt people because they don't get the bigger picture of how everything fits for every body yeah people every time you try to oversimplify something it's bound to go wrong because we live in a highly complex society that god made us in so oversimplification of issues is bound to hurt someone uh, using sort of utilitarianism that we've seen has been detrimental to a lot of people. So uh, we'll go over some examples. This kind of blends right into human sociobiology, which is the next big category of concern here. Uh, Really the main question behind it is how should we go about doing human society uh, after a post-Darwinian era? So uh, why does this question matter? Well, the answer to this question really changes how you treat people because If we're going about society in a way of natural selection, as you'll see is one of the main proponents of the day, uh, you're really not treating people the same way as maybe the Bible would have you treat them, love your enemies, uh, love the poor, love those who hurt you, uh, stuff like that. It's very important uh, in the way you treat people and also how you manage your resources, uh, how you rule your country, uh, and how you explain these complex phenomena that go around outside of us. So... A few perspectives on this. Uh, you've got the most popular, uh, or at least the most well heard of. I don't know how popular this is. I think a lot of people have a lot of uh, struggles with social Darwinism uh, proposed by Darwin uh, because of the detrimental effects it's had, uh, specifically with Hitler uh, in Nazi Germany. Uh, a form of social Darwinism was used to justify the survival of the fittest race, which was the Aryans and the uh justify the killing of all the other inferior people because he thought that they would corrupt the gene pool so bad things like that happen when you leave these ideologies uh, alone uh, and things that oversimplify good versus evil black versus white world just don't cut it really for our complex society today so other perspectives held uh, eo wilson who's a very prominent biologist or an entomologist he works a lot on he worked on island biogeography geography and studying ants and stuff so he's a really cool guy 
Uh, he's not a major, he's even though not a Christian, he's not major on social Darwinism, but does say that the environment does shape us to an extent uh, and we should rule our society sort of based on the things that the environment shapes us, like our culture uh, and different aspects like that. Uh, we've also got Stephen Jay Gould, who I believe is a Christian, uh, saying that we should reject sociobiology altogether as a topic because it's too dangerous. And the only thing that is used to prove social Darwinism is silly stories. Like he gave the example that he's, people were trying to prove to him that elephants had trunks. This is before, I guess, genetics came about. And people were proving it. Oh, elephants were stretching each other's trunks uh, and they eventually got longer. Like just like silly stories uh comical things that he just shrugged off and said we should forget about it altogether and so a biblical perspective on this i think uh is things like do unto others as you would have them do to you uh we see in matthew that's a golden rule we see in luke uh i think really i found in philippians 2 4 we've got like the antithesis to social darwinism in the bible which is let each of you look not only to his own interests but also to the interests of others uh which darwinism is saying complete opposite don't look to the interests of others look to the interests of yourself because you need to survive and pass on your gene pool it doesn't matter if anyone else does around you but philippians uh and paul is saying the complete opposite thing so i think that social darwinism is very unbiblical uh, i think even a lot of non-christians have started to realize that social darwinism sucks so i guess this question is sort of coming to resolution but not completely yet because there's still influencers in our world that hold both ways of the views. So we're going to continue on this sort of societal and ethics route with our next big topic here. Right. We're going to talk about the impact of evolution and ethics. So we touched a little bit on this on the materialist episode. A little sh shameless plug. Oh, yeah. We've had two already. Um, and we have this meta-ethical question. How do we know what we should and shouldn't do? And this is a big question for nowadays because there's a lot of people that are moral relativists and say, oh, whatever I believe is what I believe to be true. You can believe something different. Because essentially, if evolution is all there is, then evolu evolution tricks us into beliefs about objectivity. And therefore, in this sense, morality is truly a collective illusion for our species. So if we take evolution to be factual fact then that means that morality, where did morality come from? There's no real explanation yeah. for where morality came from, which means everything is subjective, Yep. which we know that's not true because there are many things that have an objective truth. So this is a big point of evolution and ethics of how, okay, how do you know what's actually right and wrong? And this is very similar to the Darwinian... Social so Darwinism. Yeah, so social yeah. Darwinism. Very, very similar. If this is what happens if you follow strictly this. social business. yeah right and then our next point we'll talk about the difference between like christianity and looking at yeah so ethics. along with you got this ethical question i think a big part of this is and uh, the bible called there is an objective moral code and that is the life of jesus and you also got uh ten commandments which were given to god's people in the old testament you can see that ethics did come from somewhere. They came from God and his very nature. They did not come from just a random thing. Uh, a lot of people, I think, in the evolutionary biology world try to justify ethics as something that evolved as a strategy for the human race. Uh, we're, we would be nice to each other so we can uh, group evolution and pursue our genes uh, over other animals. But I think 
there's a lot of evidence against group selection, especially uh, that, that just doesn't work out. Uh, a lot of even evolutionists doubt group selection and altruism and things like that. So really ethics comes from nowhere in an evolutionist uh, perspective. Uh, and that means anything that comes from nowhere is usually not very important. So <laughs> uh, if ethics are just figments of your mind, then there's no really moral truth that you can derive from it. So uh, our next question and our final topic, right, in this philosophy, I know there's many other topics that we could have covered, uh, but we have covered a lot of them on the show already. Our whole show does have a lot of philosophical issues around it. So pretty much any big question in biology today is philosophical in nature uh, because there's so many there's so many different ideas nowadays. It's rare to find a book that's just simply presenting findings without some sort of philosophical issue it's trying to answer because people want philosophical progress because there frequently unfortunately hasn't been that much in the past long time so uh so our last question is dealing with god and biology so the real question at stake here is can one be both a believer in god and a scientist uh and i hope that from watching our show or listening to our show for x amount of episodes uh that you understand that our answer to this question is absolutely yes i mean we're we go to a christian school that has a science program i mean that's kind of enough for you there but uh so there are some per different perspectives though that some say that science and faith uh, explain completely different spheres uh, and so therefore you shouldn't conflict them uh, together they explain different things but then there's others that say that there's much more connection between the spiritual and the physical world uh, one of these guys is arthur peacock who actually is a christian who accepts evolution so uh, we're going to talk about this more in depth obviously later we might have a uh, one of the professors out of school who is also an evolutionist to come on the show and talk about his perspective on the issue and so yeah i think there's a lot of truth in both of these perspectives uh, saying that science and faith explain different spheres I think to an extent uh, you bring up like the miracle sphere which we have talked about before uh, and things that some science was never meant to explain uh, science only explains natural phenomena what about spiritual phenomena uh, but I think there's also is a lot to be said about Arthur Peacock's p position because there's a huge connection between the spiritual and the physical I think we see uh, in the Gospels we see uh, whether you eat or drink, uh, do unto do unto the Lord uh, with all glory. So you've got these verses that are just a mere connection. Like the most holy things you can do are following God in your everyday mundane life uh, as a form of worship. So I think we do see a connection between the spiritual and the physical, a huge connection actually. I think Jesus didn't want Jesus didn't want us to meet him on a mountaintop. He wanted to come into our everyday lives, into the physical. That's why he took a physical body as well So, and had a physical death and a physical resurrection. So there's a lot of connection between the spiritual and the physical. So I don't think staying the statement that science and faith always explain different spheres is 100% correct. But I could see in some situations where it could be correct. But I think there is a lot more connection between the two than one would first presume. So... So yeah, so that pretty much brings us to conclusion. Uh, really, why we're trying to do this is because we want to uh, fulfill, I know we talked about it a little bit in previous episodes, the call to ideological warfare by Paul. Uh, just We just wanted to give you guys a little glimpse of some of the 
issues at stake and maybe some of the philosophical tools you could use to uh, dismantle bad arguments or destroy bad ideas or capture uh, evil thoughts, uh, just like Paul says in Corinthians. So uh, I hope that you guys enjoyed this overview of the biological concepts. And uh, yeah, our book of the week is The Philosophy of Biology, which is edited by Michael Ruse. It's actually got a collection of a bunch of different works in it. Uh, I read it all the way through. It's a great book. Uh, it's got works by Richard Dawkins. You got some Charles Darwin in there. Uh, hard skip. I mean, it's kind of boring, but uh, you've got some E.O. Wilson. You've got all like the greatest biologists within the last like 300 years. Uh, you can find their works in this book, and it's just a really an eye opener to all the different perspectives that you can take on these issues. Because some of them I thought were resolved issues, but there's still I found out that there's still people disagreeing about certain issues. So. So yeah, got anything else there to add, Caleb? Not really. I've read a I've read a tiny bit of the book, and it's very interesting. It's a lot of different stuff in it, and I yeah. would recommend it. It does address like recombinant DNA and stuff that we talked about last week as well. So however, there are some there's a lot of jargon in there, and it yeah, can be a little dry. I would skip the principles of classification section because it's just people arguing whether a frog should be called a analid or uh, I don't even know it's just people arguing analids or worms I know I made it up on the spot so uh, thank you guys for listening to the Convergence Podcast be sure to as always check us out on Twitter at Convergence Podcast BU uh, tweet us your questions tweet us if you want to be on the show uh, we won't have an episode next week because it's spring break and I'm actually going to Utah woo uh, and Caleb could record but he's not going to be on campus so he's not going to no I'll be at home yep and so yeah, so we will not have an episode next week, but be sure to stay tuned for two weeks. I think we've got a guest speaker coming on. Uh, we don't know what we're talking about yet, but stay tuned for that one. And as always, stay fresh. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.